Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. The Western returns to the big screen in another installment of Magnificent Seven. That's right, and we're going to be talking about it on today's Anatomy of Movie. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. The comic books may have the Fantastic Four. The Western may have the Magnificent Seven. But today, you have... The big three. <laughs> Dimitri Panos, Marissa Serafini, and of course, I'm Phil Svitek. And a um, couple of things right off the bat. If you're just joining us for the first time, we assume that you've seen the movie, so therefore it's very spoiler-filled, because uh, we'll talk about the various things. You can, of course, download our rundown. Uh, you just find it in the description, and uh, that way you guys can follow along and see all the various notes that we have. Now, uh, for those of you who are fans of Anatomy... Um, I want to say something, and if you're a first-time listener, hopefully you're not necessarily bored by this. It feels good to reunite. If you guys are close fans, uh, you know that uh, we've been a little bit scattered, and that's not because of anyone's commitment to the show or anything, but uh, unfortunately that's life's commitment to us, <laughs> if you may. <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, it's not been, you know, like with our heroes, we've been dealing with a lot um, under very dire circumstances, and so uh, I'm fortunate to have to say that, but uh, but damn, it feels good to be back. It does, and uh, it does feel good to be back. And hello, movie fans, and uh, I've missed this, and uh, I, I need to, again, we'll get into talking movies, but just allow me this. Uh, if you have watched Anatomy of a Movie, um, I haven't been here for a while. And I haven't been with you fine folk. The Magnificent Three. I like Magnificent <laughs> Three the, better than the big... Come on, Phil. That's basketball turn. The big three. The big three. The Boston Celtics. Come on. So, but, uh, yes, uh, it's, been, it's been a while. And uh, uh, as, as you, you, as my friends and, and my family, extended family, you know, suffered some personal tragedy. But uh, you folks are there to help me stay standing. And uh, I thank you, uh, Phil, Marissa, John, who's not here, uh, the rest of Anatomy of a Movie and Popcorn Talk Network, and, and, and Maria and Kevin. Uh, I wanted to thank you all, and, and thank you for allowing me to come back. It's a privilege to sit in this chair to be able to do this. Uh, I've always believed in that. To talk about movies has always been a passion of mine. I've done it for a little while. And uh, to sit here in this chair is a, truly a privilege, and for you to allow me to come back means a lot to me. So... With that said, let's talk Magnificent Seven and Westerns. That's right. Overall thoughts. Uh, why don't we start with the ladies first. Marissa. Magnificent Seven. Uh, Phil made me watch this. And I said, <laughs> Way to start off. Did he yes. put a gun to your head? He yeah. might have. Uh, like, first of all, I'll just preface all of this, but like, I'm not the biggest knowledgeable person on the western genre so like i wasn't rushing to go see this film but i saw it and i can see why so many people enjoyed it there was fun moments there was a lot of jokes there was a lot of action and i i saw it more as an action kind of movie rather than a western kind of movie mm -hmm. but overall i walked away and i was you know thoroughly entertained and i didn't hate it i'll just say that i i, I like person who doesn't watch a lot of westerns as normal I watched this, and, you know, I I thoroughly enjoyed it at the end. Sure. And what about cool. you, Dimitri? You know, uh, it, it, there's a saying about, like, you know, when you're making multiple copies of something, and the father, the more copies you make, 
the, the, the quality, the quantity gets a little bit diluted. Uh, and, and that's sort of kind of what I felt with this movie. Um, Anton Fuqua's remake of a remake sort of kind of dilutes the nobility and the, the theme uh, of, of the first remake, the 1960 Magnificent Seven. Um, and, and, and I sort of kind of got the feel that they made this for the mass market audience, which there's nothing wrong with that, with the exception that, you know, I think the mass market audience might just want a little more uh, just out of movies. And when you look at what Quentin Tarantino has done to the Western recently by turning it on his heel, Django Unchained, Hateful Eight sort of thing, those movies did really well. And they did, they, they, they reinvented in a sense. It's Quentin Tarantino's version of a Western and or history. Um, but audiences went. And I, I think that if you kept to... Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, which 1960s version Magnificent Seven was based on, a little bit more. Uh, I, I think audiences could get that too. But my biggest problem, I guess, is that it tying in our lead character, Denzel Washington, and having him have history with the bad guy sort of kind of dilutes the nobility of what the Magnificent Seven were. They would they were doing it because it was the right thing to do where ultimately this movie falls upon. This is a revenge movie mm-hmm. um, by, by, by giving that character history with the bad guy. And it sort of, it sort of dilutes the nobility and the cause for me. And that to me was a big thing. Now I, with that said, you know, it was beautifully shot. Uh, Fuqua, obviously studied his Western movie history because the stunts in this movie were great. The, the, the horse stunts were amazing and the gunfights were just fun to watch. Um, but yet with, even with that said, you could see similar stuff. Watch the movie Silverado directed by Lawrence Kasdan, you know, and you'll get the same thing, but you'll get it like a really good Western kind of a story. I just wish that, that that Magnificent Seven, the 1960 version, you know, it was about damaged heroes who try to become noble men whose motivation comes from doing what is right as opposed to seeking revenge with this version just ultimately boiled down to. Well, I, I think that's, me. I mean, you know, a lot of what, like, you, you take High Noon, you take a movie, like, that, that, that was all about, I mean, we were trying to instill good values in a sense. Like, that's what yes. the Western was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we've changed as a culture in general. Um, Unforgiven was kind of the, perhaps the start of where it was like, okay, maybe your hero is actually bad and he's starting to be the anti-hero. And now with shows like, um, you know, Sopranos, Breaking Bad, and so forth, like, the, the line's blurred, and I think that's just culturally where we're at. So I don't necessarily mind that portion of it. Um, it's And I did enjoy it overall, and I the problem is I feel like I would have enjoyed it a lot more if I didn't have a Western history. It, it didn't, you know, in, in, the, in the grand landscape, uh, perhaps pun intended, uh, of Westerns, <laughs> It didn't necessarily bring something newer to the table. Yeah. You know, the storytelling, I, I, you know, it's one of those things like I can't really fault the writing. I thought everything worked well. Things were motivated. It just wasn't something newer. It was very boilerplate-ish. Yeah. It was very, like I said, it was it was strictly, to me anyways, it just felt it was going for the mass market audience. And it didn't try to bring anything, like you said, new to the table. Um, you know, the performances were fine. I, again, I will say this. The other thing this movie, for me, at least lacked was it sort of kind of lacked the cool factor. You, it's undeniable when you want, if you watch 
1960 version that Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen have a cool factor on screen where they don't really have to do a whole hell of a lot of anything other than strike a match in the sole of their boot to light a cigar. Or it was just the way that they would ride into town. Denzel, who's a very strong actor, he's a great actor, don't get me wrong, but he didn't have that cool factor, so to speak. Like, when he was in The Equalizer, he was a badass. He was a force to be reckoned with. Yul Brenner in the 1960s version proved to be a force to be reckoned with, and when you put him with Steve McQueen, who was the ultimate of cool, the Pratt-Washington chemistry, albeit I felt it was good, but it didn't have that... They had to act to get the cool factor. You know what I'm saying? I mean, in terms of Chris Pratt, I I feel like he was underutilized because he's such a funny guy, Mm -hmm. and I I felt he could have brought a lot more of that. So I don't know if that necessarily defines him as cool, but I did feel like if you're going to cast him, he was slightly underutilized as Chris Pratt. See, I didn't think Denzel Washington was going for cool. I, I think his character was more so just a presence and not to be reckoned with. And uh, and I like physically didn't look very you know menacing. He just looked very authoritative. <laughs> yeah, like don't confuse like I, I get what you're saying. like don't confuse like like trying to be cool. Like Steve McQueen didn't have to try. He just was. He was a presence on screen. Not unlike Humphrey Bogart, and, and I know I'm going back to classic. Not unlike Harrison Ford. Um, you know, I mean. These people had a presence on screen, and albeit Denzel can have that. I mean, training day, he... he, That's... that's... Please. I I mean, absolutely. He didn't have that for me in Magnificent Seven. Um, In Yul Brenner, there was just something about him. The way he rode his horse, and even the way he held his gun, there was, like, he didn't have to act cool. It was just, that's the way they were. You know, they had this presence, and I and I felt that Denzel, albeit he was good, I, I wanted more. I, I did want more of that. Okay, like, so cool since presence. we're on that, right, we'll, we'll kind of backtrack a little bit, but might as well talk about Denzel for a little bit. It's his first Western. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? I mean, is there just a different art form to performing a Western? Like, I mean, Clint Eastwood, how many has he done? <laughs> he just has that presence. He, he's and, another one, absolutely. You know, and, and so when you just kind of look at him, it's it's the rough look, the face. Um, obviously, he doesn't talk a lot, necessarily. Yeah, I think uh, it was, like, facial expressions, the way he carried himself, especially how he walked, and, like, the, the setup of before he would draw his gun, I think, added to, you know, the, the physical body language mm-hmm. that would translate as presence and mm-hmm. coolness, I guess. Yeah. No, but, but you're right. I mean... You bring up somebody like a Clint Eastwood. Again, he was somebody that, again, just the way he would wear his hat and light his his cigarillo, it it there was just something about it. And Denzel is being Denzel, um, you know, popular actor, very good actor. I don't think he was misplaced. He didn't look like a fish out of water. We know he can carry himself, and we know that he looks good as a w- w- carrying a gun into a shotgun just from his other movies, right? Mm -hmm. And that sometimes is a big mistake in when they cast somebody. If the person doesn't look comfortable holding that 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 tool, that prop, then then I there's a disbelief. If they look uncomfortable doing it, he doesn't. He looked on he looked very comfortable on a horse. And there was even a good camaraderie. But again, I'm just 
I'm just going back. Maybe it's more nostalgia for me. I don't know. Well, it's but, also true. He, he, you know, he didn't grow up on westerns. Like, you right. know what I mean. So I think his learning curve to understand how this works, like, although be it a great actor, he had to learn a lot. Mm-hmm. And again, when you talk about the western genre, I mean, that it's huge. Yeah. It's riddled with history and, and minutia. And maybe he just didn't have the time. I don't know. Again, I'm not faulting his necessary performance. Nope. I think he, you know, he also didn't watch Magnificent Seven because he didn't. He specifically chose not to be tainted by that performance mm-hmm. and just do his own. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, I'm just pointing these things out as perhaps that's why. Yeah, maybe. And, and again, I'm not. I didn't hate him. I didn't think he was miserable at all, and not by any stretch of the means. I, and, he, and like I said earlier, I didn't feel he was a fish out of water. I didn't think he was miscast in doing this. He was he was fine. I just he, there was just that certain uh, panache that that was sort of missing, at least for me. Um, and if you'll allow, you know, I wanted to talk about, you know, the western keeps on coming back, which to me is is really is great. You know, the, I love the western, but. You know, I want to do my TCM Ben Mankiewicz, you know, uh, moment because, you know, I think that the Western in American in American cinema, you know, has 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 contributed so much to cinema and beyond and where it's it's influenced other genres. And the Western has been around since since the silent era of film because they were easy to film. Uh, uh, your your main actors like like uh, like Tom Mix like they could do their own stunts in the horse. They were very cheap to do, and and for the audience they were great entertainment. Good guys wore white, the bad guys wore black. You knew who was good and, and good it's the story and of America. And it was the story of America, and hence you know, and that's the reason why they did it in black and white so that the audience could visually see and and root for the good guys. Um, and and there were great stunts. So they entertained an audience when when film was 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 learning how to stand, so to speak. And then you know, western sort of kind of as, as as talkies came more into play. Then there are other genres that were coming and, and still in the limelight. And it was literally about 1939 that this movie called Stagecoach came out, and it starred who is probably one of the greatest cowboys or known as being one of the greatest larger-than-life cowboy heroes, John Wayne, right? And that revitalized the Western again. And again, Westerns were cheap. They were called odors because, you know, a lot of your actors were horses, so you fed them (laughs) oats. And you could... They they were cheaply done, but you had... It's still... You had great action. You had good storytelling. uh, And then... And then something weird happened where television was invented and they're looking at programming. And since Westerns were so great and grand on the big screen, Westerns started to become popular on television. So you had great, you had Gunsmoke, Big Valley, Rawhide, which starred Clint Eastwood, Wanted Dead or Alive, which starred, which, which starred Steve McQueen. And that started to take away from the movie-going audience. And so right around that time, big screen competition with the little screen, they had to, if, there, if the Western was to survive in that era, era, they had to sort of kind of become a little edgier. That's how Sam Peckinpah comes into play. The Wild Bunch, the Magnificent Seven, some can argue that. That was the start of... We're going to go and just tell an action story 
Like mm-hmm. you said, this is, you know, the Magnificent Seven, there, there's nobility involved, but ultimately it's a Western action movie, you know? And so they had to become a little bit edgier. And, you know, and then today, when you look at what the Western has, has done, Quentin Tarantino, I mentioned, but look at, look at some of the popular Westerns within the past, say, 10 years or so. They're remakes of other Westerns. You had 310 to Yuma, Yuma. which re- it's a really solid remake, okay? Uh, True Grit, that was a good one. again, a really solid remake of what is still a very solid original with John Wayne. You know, and now you have The Magnificent Seven. So it's, it's great to me that the Western can survive and has survived um, because I think that there could be good stories to be told. Um, but like any genre, it has its hits and misses. The, the Lone Ranger wasn't particularly good. No. <laughs> so, but that's a little brief history. And then I also, later on in the show, we'll talk about how the Magnificent Seven in 1962... And the Western just has permeated pop culture and has influenced, like, other genres. So, you know. Well, uh, why don't we take a quick step? So in terms of this, right, so it's technically the third, well, the second remake, the third movie. um, And, you know, dating back to all all the way kind of, uh, he he started getting involved in, in this back in 2012. Mm-hmm. So about four years, um, you know, at this point, and back then it was supposed to be Morgan Freeman, Kevin Costner, Matt Damon, Tom Cruise, um, and obviously it's kind of evolved since then. And when uh, when he got the call from MGM, he was kind of hesitant. He was he was he was nervous. He was like, I, I really want to do a western. I've loved westerns. Um, however, I in particular love this one. Mm-hmm. So the last thing I need to be doing is messing it up. Right. Uh, but uh, reluctantly, uh, or maybe not, re- he he uh, he went and did it. Yeah. But he wanted to stay really true to the full DNA of Sam and Tom Fuqua. We're talking. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, and I find it I find it interesting too because the producer of this movie, Roger Birnbaum, um, who previously was the co-chairman and CEO of MGM, which released the 1960 version as well. Um, it was just really funny. Like he wanted to do a rest- western as well. Um, and they were looking for, they were looking for product. There wasn't much in development. And to me, what's funny is, instead of, instead of trying to maybe mine something original that might be out there, they went back into the MJM library to see, hey, what can we remake? So, we always talk about the mentality of studio execs. So instead of trying to do something original. Now let's go see what we we have this vast library at MGM. Let's see what we can do. And he was a big fan of the Magnificent Seven, 1960, and he was also a big fan of the Seven Samurai, uh, Akira Kurosawa. So and there's a history there as well too, which I, I just find so fascinating as to th- there's a mutual love between Seven Samurai in the 1960, and then this Magnificent Seven. There's a there's a you know, film-rich history. Which, by the way, makes me feel like, um, now that I think about it, just this quick tangent, that all these people that are now executives mm-hmm. just grew up on movies, and they're like, I want to make my own version of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because of how much they love it. For no right. other reason than that. And it's like, yeah, maybe that's not, let's not let that be the reason. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you, you know? got to give it to Fuqua. I feel like, just already being a fan from the get-go, 
And like, so you know that this was a passion project of his. It wasn't something that was really made for money. It just seemed like it was a movie made for fun and entertainment. Yeah, and, and again, his his detail from production design, his cinematographer, oh, it was beautiful. It, it looked like a Western, you know? And there, there, there's definitely something to be said about that because, if anything, your Western should not be claustrophobic. Your no. Western needs to be in the wide open of spaces. You know, that's one thing about Hateful Eight that I sort of kind of like. Everybody talked about the cinematography, but I'm like, it's in a room. Like, oh, the Western should be, I don't care if it's in a saloon at some point, but there's got to be something outside. I don't well, care if it's in the saloons, you have the windows and you yeah. see, you know what I mean? Like, everywhere you look, there's something beyond the yeah. beyond. Yeah, and there was so much said about Hateful Eight because it was actually filmed in 70 millimeter. It was like, who cares? It's in a room. Like I want to see. I want to see the vistas. I want to see the mm-hmm. sunsets. I want to see the mountains. Like I want that. I want to have like those are tropes of an American Western uh, that that make it make it so special. You know, to see them on a horizon with their horses going through a river. Like you see these. So commonly in westerns, but it's what makes the western rich in American culture. Absolutely. Well, and one, you know, just also on on production design, one thing like they you always end up building the town. Yeah, I don't think that there's never, to my knowledge, been around like um, you can't just kind of be like, okay, we'll just put up a couple things. Like, no, you pretty much almost have to build the town, even though it may be hollow and whatnot. But um, that's what you have to end up doing in order to make it look good, and that's one of my favorite things. But when you think about it, in this movie, they actually did build a town. They did, absolutely. And, and the buildings were not facades. You know, if, if, um, if, if you're not already here in California, and, and if you're coming out to visit, and you are here in California, and you've never done the Universal Studio Tour, I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a great tram tour, but it'll take you through quote-unquote Western Town, where many Westerns were filmed with John Wayne, and you realize those buildings are facades. They were built specifically for the actors, you know, like John Wayne. They, you know, the left side was where we filmed John Wayne coming out of a building because we made our doorways a little bit smaller. So when he comes out, he's looking larger than life. On the right side, we made them a little bit bigger so that the woman would come out looking demure. And, you know, and so those were facades. And when you look at what they did in this movie, they were, they were not just facades. They were actually working, like, you could walk inside the saloon and they would have the bar with the beverages and the glasses. I mean, the detail that Fuqua took. And, and, and I love it, too, because you have, I would think you would have more control. You know, mm-hmm. when you're filming an action sequence, you literally have more than just a virtual map you have a map of your town as to how I'm going to choreograph how the horses are going to go, where this person's going to jump from a rooftop to rooftop. Uh, I found that the production design, uh, uh, Derek Hill did an amazing, amazing job at building, literally building Rose Creek for, for, from ground up. And that, to me, that was part of the fun. Uh, they had a lot of sequences where things were happening, uh, almost kind of like a montage. And you weren't explicitly told of what they're thinking. Later on, perhaps you were. But for the most part, you kind of had to get inside their mentality and be like, okay, 
he's staring out into something. Well, what is he looking at? What does right. that mean? Um, and you you know you start to figure out the pieces, and you're like, oh, sure. that's what he's doing. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, and and apparently Hill was responsible for building 25 buildings, the church. Built the church and then and burned fully, the church. And then yeah. they burned the church down. And then they they, they also had a fully functional uh, levery stable mm-hmm. uh, as well. So everything was practical and real. You could open a cabinet and the cup was usable. Um, you know the whole and, and this is coming from from Sarsgaard, who was our villain. Uh, the whole thing felt lived in, and that's I got that sense. I, I got that sense of the time period. Of which it which it was made, there was fantastic, amazing detail, and that's why maybe I didn't like the movie as much as I had hoped. But there were aspects of this movie, including the production design, that I thought were truly spectacular, and the cinematography and action as well. Yeah. What about you, Marissa? Um, I, I liked all the buildings. It definitely was very believable as a small town. Sure. Um, coming from someone who literally comes from a small town. I know what that's like. Um, and I liked how there were those different shots during the action scene, which we'll get to, where you always see someone jumping from roof to roof mm-hmm. or, like, actually utilizing the space of each building and going in and out of the windows and doors. Or you can see the different levels where, like, someone's up top in the mezzanine and someone's down below. Right. And I think they... It looked beautiful, and knowing the fact that it was all practical and you could go into each set just shows how much detail that they really put into it in the production. And, you know, you just have to applause them, applaud them, because they used every space that they made, and it it looked awesome. Yeah, it was above and beyond just a set, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and And I really did find that aspect very cool, very cool. Um, so let's talk about uh, let's let's talk about story, right? And we'll spend a little bit of time here. Um, overall, a very simple story. I mean, there, there's Bartholomew. He slaughters people. We recruit. <laughs> we get to the town. <laughs> we take back the town, and then we fight for the town, and then we win the town. End of story. End of story. I, you know, but that's that's part of you know that to me westerns have always been beautiful in the way they kind of uh, the intricacies of all of that mm-hmm. you know the specifics of making that happen, um, and that's why I said like when they're really thinking they're tinkering of like what they're gonna do that to me is the art form not necessarily right. the story, right. um, but how does it compare to you, you you know for other westerns well Marissa how, let's start with you because you're the interesting one in the group. <laughs> <laughs> not having seen too many westerns. Well, I, I think it's not. I'm not going to compare it to other westerns, but just the theme of the writing and just the simplest stories I do enjoy because those themes still resonate today. Like it was, you can doesn't really have to be town; just replace it with something else. Like knowing the idea that someone can be like walked all over by a certain person or certain group, and like y- your ego's hurt, and it's about that comeback kind of story mm-hmm. i think more than your ego in this particular case yeah, yeah. it was like families were torn apart and whatnot but the, it's it's more so like uh going through a situation and coming back from it and then like rising above it more so mm-hmm. and like banding together the whole idea of a community coming together i like i think that's just admirable that people should still have sure. in today's society y- you know you said something at the top of the show that 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 resonates like you said you didn't feel as if you were watching a western and i find i find that regardless of the genre if the movie is good enough you should be able to plunk out that plot line take it out of the western 
and put it in a modern day cop movie or take it out of the mm-hmm. cop movie and put it into a science fiction movie or take it out of that. Like the story shouldn't be defined by the genre that it's in. It should just be a good story. The genre is more or less the setting that you that you hold. That's why I find I find westerns to be equally as fascinating and interesting as a science fiction as a good science fiction movie. You know, they they have in a sense similar tropes, but if you do them really well, right? You should be able to just plunk that story out and plug it into another movie and that'll work. You know, that works wonderfully. So, you know, it was interesting to hear Marissa. It was interesting to hear you say at the top, I didn't really feel like I was watching a Western. I felt like I was watching an action movie. That, to me, is the sign that somebody was doing something sort of right. Yeah, it was more so it's like not a nag to Westerns. I just, I got lost in the film and forgetting that it was a Western. And it has, like, Western has all these expected tropes that you're looking for. And we got pretty much all of them. But at the end of it, you're just watching whatever's happening, despite whatever genre it is mm-hmm. in. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, th- I think part of it is you start to, they did a good job of making us fall in love with most of the seven, you know, if not all of them. It just sure. kind of depends how you defi- want to define it for yourself. Um, and then the big switch, too, was uh, they, they made uh, the woman, Haley Bennett, a hero. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, by the way, she was also great in Hardcore Henry. We yeah. did that one, so check yeah. that one out. <laughs> um, but I think that that was a that was a big, big step, you know, because uh-huh. that that wasn't in the original. No, 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 it wasn't. But uh, you know, another thing too, I wanted to go back. Um, you know, what the Magnificent Seven started was think about basically think about at its core what's the Magnificent Seven? It's a but it's a it's a bunch but putting together a group of unlikely people that you wouldn't necessarily think would normally get along. You're putting them together to overcome like amazing odds and obstacles in front of them. Think about how many movies that that's the basic plot line, putting together a band of people to overcome these ridiculous odds, like even things like the dirty dozen, like that, that that's instead of being the magnificent seven, they're the dirty dozen, but it's the same thing. It's like, and so what it's, what, what the Magnificent Seven has done for, you know, as far, or, or even Seven Samurai to start off, but for American movies, it's, it's a commonly used plot point of just putting together an unlikely group of heroes, the Suicide Squad. I mean, and the Furious it, sense, Seven. Expendables. Yeah. Expendables. But here's the difference. They had to teach and trust the town. True. Which is a huge, you know what I mean? You don't see that often. It's one thing to put together a band together. True. It's a whole other thing to say, okay, now uh, we need you guys. Like, you know, we're not going to be able to do this. True. Yeah. So. Yeah, we need we need to build our own army. Yeah, you know, which I is, liked that. That was cool. That yeah. was like a whole town coming together, you know, for the greater good. Right, right. And and but again, it's it's a fun thing to to toy around with because how else are these guys going to? How else are our seven or how else are our dozen? Like, how are you going to get through this if you don't try to, in one way, shape, or form, try to tr- t- not only um, train your your town. 
but you got to come up with other tricks like building trenches, hiding in tents, and like. I mean, you know, this is like the American Revolution. Yeah, <laughs> this is the, you know what I mean. Like in many sense, it's it's very allegorical of that. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. you have your founding fathers, and then it's like, okay, well, the rest of you, yeah, you're, you're farmers and whatnot, but let's go. Yeah, and it was no mistake that this movie, this remake was set not too long after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it it resonates, especially when you have Denzel as your lead character, who has to, like, like who has to, like, show his, his um, credentials. Every time he walks into a town, because everybody looks at him like 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 Black Bart from Blazing Saddles, and he's like, "Listen, I'm a man of the law. This is my job. This is what I do. Here's my sort of, here are my documents." He's got to do that everywhere he goes. Um, and and then there was like a little bit of PTSD with with the Ethan Hawke character and such. So you know, they added that. That was very specific. They uh, you know they liked the whole idea of uh, Deer Hunter and Christopher Walken. And mm-hmm. So like, why don't we use that now? <laughs> that one, that version is a little bit more darker than this one. But sure. So that one's the R-rated version. Yeah, Literally. and that was like sort of what the Robert Vaughn character was yeah. going through in the 1960 version uh, as well. It was interesting in terms of the cast too. Uh, you know, uh, the way it's written, like historically. People were very diverse. It's just the movies never portrayed that. So it's not that, uh, you know, we have a skewed. It's basically saying, like, they didn't do it to be diverse just to be diverse. They're like, no, this is actually more historically accurate mm-hmm. than what you you know. Sure. And you're tainted by movies. In a sense, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and but, you know, the thing is, it's like, you know, we spend so much time on this diversity and everything. And I, and I do get it. And I'm sensitive to the thing, but... You know, it didn't. You hire who's best for the job, and who can pull the job off, right? Like I can look at the 1960 Magnificent Seven and say, "Your Brenner doesn't look like your typical American cowboy," for you know, for sure. Neither does Charles Bronson. You know, Steve McQueen is your American like cowboy, and they, you know, and a lot of a lot of people will point to Eli Wallach as the bad guy, but there are a lot of. Latin Americans who were in the original uh, Magnificent Seven, you know, I don't think it was a complete 100%. I wouldn't call it like a whitewashing, but this movie did a great job. And the actors, regardless of their ethnicity, they brought it to the screen. Like, they were they were good. You, you hire the right person for the job, regardless of ethnicity. If they can pull it off, they pull it off. Zorba the Greek was played by Anthony Quinn, who is not Greek, <laughs> but he's so iconic in that role. Doesn't matter, but but I thought the cast really gelled for who they were, and I thought they worked. I thought they were very. I thought they worked well together, and they were, they had good presence on screen. Yeah, I like the fact there was a very diverse cast. I think it's more the talent that can, like you were saying, it's it's the talent who can actually do embody each character, and I liked each of these individual, you know, seven for their own reasons. They mm-hmm. had all their special skills that we we were rooting for and they enjoyed and their different personalities of how they approach and gunfights and whatnot. And uh, like I liked it because each of them had their fun quirks, but they were all so vastly different from mm-hmm. each other. Yeah. And and Phil, you mentioned, you know, it was it was a, a twist, so to speak, of having having a woman uh, you know, listen she was looking for help and uh i never really i never looked at that character as a damsel in distress 
No, no, at all. Yeah. You know, know she I, could I, handle herself, but she needed help. Here's the greatest thing of, uh, you know, he, he's trying <clears> to teach her to shoot, and then he get. Uh, I remember uh, he tells her, if you're going to do this, wear pants. She does neither. Mm-hmm. And that's and she gets the kill. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was a big moment of, like, you know, obviously at that point, um, Chris Pratt's character can't see it because he's, he's shot to death, but... <laughs> Wait, what? No. <laughs> Uh, no, I enjoy that because we're we're always talking on anatomy, like how Hollywood is, you know, is slowly becoming with it has more stories for that and better roles for stronger women in film, and like now knowing that she wasn't really a big character in the original, that that she was made bigger in this one. I'm like I applaud it because she was strong from the get go, and I like that. And the fact that yeah, she did come out with a win. And that she was, a, she supported herself and supported the, the town because she was even like, I'm going to fight too. Right. If this guy's going to leave, well, I'll take his place. And right. she had no qualms about it. And I enjoyed that. But wouldn't it have, you know, like, now that we're talking about it, but wouldn't it have made, like, since we are talking about women's roles and movies, and, and like, this character really didn't exist in the 1960. Um, there was a very beautiful uh, Latin American actress in the 1960 version, but she was there as part of a maybe misguided love story. Um, But it was 1960. To me, wouldn't it have been, if you are going for that, why not just make that woman part of the Magnificent Seven? Just make her part of the Magnificent Seven. Like, does it have to be all men? Like, if if you're going to go that route and take pride in going that route, then go full boat. Just make her part of the Magnificent Seven. Well, the, the part no, just make her part of the Magnificent Seven. Just make her one of those. Just take out one of those characters, and well, I, the reason her. I, I don't mind it is, is she's the she's the one that gets it started, right? You know, mm-hmm. she understands her limitations, um, but she's willing to, despite that, kind of go beyond that, mm-hmm. right? And then she sort of learns and and, and whatnot. So I don't know. I, I I actually think this is I don't know for me stronger than if she just was part of the Seven, you know. Because she she also in a way grows. Yeah. She had it to begin with, but now she's utilizing what she did have to begin mm-hmm. with. Um, so. Yeah. Otherwise, she could have been one of the one of the people dead. Could have been. We didn't want sure. that. No, no, not she after survives. what she suffered. No, no, no. Yeah, I was. You know, I was not happy with the beginning of the film, burning down in church and killing. Uh, Bomber, Matt Bomber, in the first five minutes before the even <laughs> before the opening title credits. credits, I was like, I'm not sure if I'm going to like this film. And, and he makes it, and he makes it in the opening credits, and you're like, oh well, yeah, so sorry, like, Matt Bomber. So you know, no. we hardly knew ye. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. but you got credit in the like, opening credits. You kill Matt Bomber in the first five minutes. Like, nope, no. Well, it's, cool. I mean, it's certainly, you know, it's one of those things, you, ha- especially in a Western, that's one of the tropes. You have to set up your villain in the worst of ways. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, he was dastardly. Yeah. He was he, dastardly. Yeah. Absolutely. But again, I'll, I'll say that one thing that the original setup, under the original, the 1960 version set up is that these townspeople were pretty simple they didn't necessarily they didn't know how to use a gun the only weapons they really had were were their shovels their spades their axes whatever um and and alcohol and alcohol you know and and this one like there was 
they were almost in the 1960 version. They were almost shited for not like having no. weaponry, you know. But there there was a great key scene in the movie where their shovels came into great use in beating up on the bad guys. <laughs> and and there was a good scene in this movie as well that sort of mirrored that same scene. But um, yeah, it's. Uh, it's one again. It's just another trope. It's like the training session, which is a you know, it's a fun part to this movie as well. Oh, yeah. absolutely, and that's where Ethan, when Ethan's talk character gets, you know, the the fact that he's being questioned, and you know, whether or not he can actually still shoot, and then he just does it. Um, that was a great moment too because it worked on so many different levels. So that that was a lot of fun to mm-hmm. see. Um, Let's see what else. Um, I mean, gosh, it's so simple. But I, why don't we why don't we talk about the takeover of the town, the initial one, because that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, and it was that one was a lot more, um, you know, of an even fight, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved the whole idea of like, how many did you shoot? Mm-hmm. I got six. Yeah, well, I got seven. Yeah. yeah, that kind of reminded me of Lord of the Rings at the end. Sure, <laughs> you know how they're always counting how many they got. Uh, I enjoyed it because, like you said, it was equal, but. Watching it, I I forgot like how many people were originally there. I was like, oh, <laughs> I guess there were twenty or something, you know. And uh, I, it was like a nice setup to what the big taking back the town scene was, and yeah. it, and like what I liked, it, it was quick and fast, yeah. and that they still had one guy left that they let walk away to mm-hmm. give that message. I was like, okay, not everyone just died. Yeah, it's like they have some consciousness. They they know right and wrong. Like mm-hmm. it, they're not just mercilessly killing everyone. No, they're sending right. a message. No, yeah. it's the Western way. Yeah. So you you leave one to deliver the message. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to deliver it yourself. No. That'd be stupid. <laughs> no. Come on. Don't kill the messenger. Absolutely. <laughs> no, you always number one. Always yeah. leave a messenger. Number two, always kill the messenger. Always yeah. kill the messenger. Especially when he's responsible. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't just, he wasn't, this was the sheriff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and that, there's, there's your symbol. Still elected sheriff. <laughs> Not you know? anymore. But I did love Bartholomew's kind of, you know, like, uh, no one's going to remember Rose Creek, but they're going to remember me. Yeah. And uh, as sick and twisted as that was, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so I was going to, he played a really... Well, he was dastardly. The only thing he was missing was his little handlebar mustache to go to like twist. But he was, yeah, he was da- dastardly. It's the only word that I can think of. He was that 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 almost stereotypical Western trope of the villain. He wore black and yeah. could care less about anything else, you know. And couldn't help. And he himself took at over the, the church. Yeah. At the end, I, I you know, I. Th- you know, the, my joke was like, "Oh, is he going to change? Is he going to change?" And I knew he wouldn't, but it, he was just setting himself up to like get him, and then it, the boom, the gun. Yeah, and and to me though, that 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 ending was, come on, is is Denzel Washington's character like he, he you know, if he's he's got to know that he's got, you know, Denzel probably has something in his boot. Why wouldn't you think that this guy had something in you know? I mean, if he's had history with this guy, um. But you know, I again, I get the setup and why it ended up being, you know, why it was what it was, mm-hmm. you know. So it was fine. It was all good. Um, you know, the other thing that I really we talked about a little bit about the production design, but we also have to talk about the training action and stunts in this yes. movie. I think because they I think didn't it's want to really, do CG. No, 
Well, even it, just really quickly too, even before uh, just the, the horrors of shooting this again. To talk about realism, they would have to wait for like windstorms to calm down and all this stuff. So they're just sitting out there like, okay, well, when it calms down, we'll go shoot. But yes, go ahead to uh, the actual training portion of it. Yeah, I just find that you know that 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 you know he basically. They they hone their actors to whatever the, whatever their comfort zone was in doing and handling their weaponry or whatever, and then they would hone in on okay this is this guy's specialty. This is how Denzel is and the way he carries his gun. This is the way Chris Pratt is going to be, and I really did like the way that you know as far as training goes, as far as like they actually went back to Western history. They used stunt coordinators and such who were working with the greats like John Wayne mm-hmm. and stuff and who could ride horses. And, 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 and the men, the Magnificent Seven, were bonding over what they were learning. It was almost like, like, like um, the, those summer camps where you go... The Western summer camp. Yeah, it was almost like city slickers <laughs> in a way where they were learning how to become... Like cowboys, and yeah, Thel Reed. He was a quick draw expert uh, who toured with Gene Autry, you know, and he worked on Gunsmoke, uh, and and you know he helped Chris Pratt through, and you know he showed him how to really use that Colt revolver and things. But I, you know, you and get Chris the Pratt's sense. an outdoorsman too, so he must sure. have been loving this. He loves to catch his own fish. It's the he reason loves... why he did it. Yeah. He was like, mm-hmm. I want to be part of a Western. He goes, this is fantastic. He goes, I would love to learn how to do all this stuff. But everybody, um, in a sense, yeah. came up, you know, they committed. And, you know, Foucault was talking of, of say, Chisholm or, or Denzel Washington. He's like, yeah, Denzel likes to box. You know, so basically, I used those strengths to 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 bring that out in him. He was very precise. He only needed one gun. Um, you know, he would be jabbing like he used that. Pratt was a little bit different. Um, the gentleman who played um, the Red Harvest, mm-hmm. um, you know, he said that his his bow and arrow training and rifle training. Does everything he shoots bows, guns, and I guess he had a little bit of experience of shooting a bow and arrow, but you know, going to the gym and just learning how to do all this stuff, to me it's a testament to the actors and to the stunt people because it really looked second nature to them. Yeah. You know, they they looked very comfortable in behind wielding the weapons that they did. You know, my only thing with the Chris Pratt character, I'm gonna bring this up. I wasn't buying this whole card trick magic stuff. Like, there was that one scene where those two guys sort of kind of Shanghai him. At the beginning? Him. Yeah, at the beginning. I'm like, oh, is he going to, is this, like, like, and again, Steve McQueen would have never had to, like, rely on a magic trick to get himself out yeah, of the but thing. Yeah, but, like and I said, I, I didn't mind that because it played into kind of Chris Pratt. I mean, you know, take his, Guardians of the Galaxy is that his, you know, he's a hero, but he's, 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 he's He's cocky, but he's not really that cool. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't know. That's so. I I don't know. I don't mind it in that way. I in fact, I wish they utilized it more because that's to me what he's great at. Yeah, I mean, I didn't mind it either. Uh, for me, is it established that his character was more fun and playful, and can also at the same time be deceiving. So, uh, like, but I liked it. And I think it's set up for like a bigger thing that he did at the mm-hmm. end. Yeah. So yeah. So 
the other thing too about this movie is um you know one thing about westerns there's always people falling either through a glass window in a saloon from a rooftop and or a horse and it's how that's done you know and 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 the other great thing too is they had that great scene with with Denzel and his horse and then he goes on to the side of his horse while he's shooting that's another great western kind of stunt you know that that I love that this movie utilized that old school kind of gunfight and you know uh, the other thing they did a lot was guy goes in through the saloon door and the camera pans to the window it's another guy comes <laughs> out the window <laughs> you know yeah. they did that a couple of times as well so that, call it cliche but I I don't know I sort of find that fun yeah no I, I do what I'm looking at I do and of course uh, we have to talk about the costuming um, you know seven different types of looks um, overall and we talked about sort of the, the, the darks for um, for Bartholomew but these guys you know if you, you know, just even looking at this picture, they're not, uh, you know, they kind of have their own style. Um, they're not necessarily dressed in white. No. But shirt-wise, perhaps a little bit more. And, uh, yeah, I, I love their style. Yeah, Sharon Davies, who is the costume designer, said she wanted to combine a little spaghetti western-ish with, with the realistic look. Now, there was a scene where our Magnificent Seven were either riding into town and whatnot, and Chris Pratt's on his horse. And I swear, I was like, he looks like he's wearing Clint Eastwood's costume and, like, the good, the bad, the ugly. He's got, the, the, like, the not the big cowboy hat, but the smaller hat. He had this small type of cigar that Clint Eastwood smoked, and he had on that, like, black vest. Of punk. Like, he looked as if he just did walk out of a Clint Eastwood, Sergio Leone, um, Western. Uh, so, so I get that. So I, I just found that that, you know, Denzel had done a lot of research on the time period and just you wore black. The person didn't buy the actual person inspired uh, to look with the texture and layers and, and just how they look. That's another thing. The 1960 version, our gunslinger played by by Ewell Brenner was also all in black as well. And it's a sign of the times, too, because it makes it a little darker. There's. Again, they were not heroes, so to speak, but, you know, and by wearing black, you're not, like, there's a little bit something going on here, but but Yul Brynner made it iconic, so much iconic, that when he was asked to do Westworld, the movie by Michael Crichton based off his book and such, the costume that they gave him was pretty much identical to what he was in The Magnificent Seven, and where he was the hero in Magnificent Seven in Westworld, he was the very scary, daunting villain to run away from. And I just found that that juxtapositioning and what they did uh, in Westworld was a nice homage to his gunslinger uh, uh, from the 60s version. But the costumes are great, especially um, Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he looked like a bear. He did. He was. He was fun, and and the way they were, even just the way they utilized him for jokes through both uh, physical and otherwise. Um, yeah, I mean, it was like one big boys camp, and I love that about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I liked him, and he had his moment at the end too. I was like, ah. See, but but was it a moment other than just dying? Like he didn't. Well, like it was I a felt moment it was where quite I, earned. Yeah, it was huh? a moment where was it quite I quite earned. You felt yeah, for I just him. felt all he did. He all he did was die. Like <laughs> he didn't even get anything. I wanted more. Like he was such. He was this bear, and he tried. He tried, but 
I wanted more out of the kid because he was a character that I really enjoyed watching on screen, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, even his affectation, the way he talked. Um, I loved how they introduced his character, uh, you know, uh, when they find him. I just wish, you know, he more or less did something. Died, died. <laughs> and he was, you know, and I was like, I was hoping he would at least make it. Mm-hmm. Put his arms around the guy like a bear, like not give up, like that bear in, Re- uh, in Revenant, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so he just wouldn't die. <laughs> so um, you know, and um, I also liked you know the the costuming of Red Harvest. Um, he looked fantastic. It was yeah. He he almost looked like he came out of like Mad Max Fury Road. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> he looked cool. He looked cool. Um, like I, I liked his appearance because he did look so vastly different from everybody else, and like you could actually pick him out of a crowd with the <laughs> with the red. Um, but you know, going because we're talking about wardrobes, and I'm like watching this film. I'm like, how can they tell that that's their friend and? Who they're shoot, shooting, right. or a townsperson that they're rooting, or that's trying to take back the town, or a bad guy. Yeah. I was like, how can they equally distinguish who's good and who's bad? Yeah. Well, here's an interesting trivia piece too about the costuming, specifically the hats, mm-hmm. which you know can make or break a cowboy. You know, Absolutely. each actor needed to try on at least fifteen to twenty hats before finding the one that they that felt was them. best for their character. Mm-hmm. So I find that interesting as well. Absolutely. Yeah, it must have been, you know, and it must have been, and again, I just, there was one thing about this movie that I did sense a a camaraderie among these guys. Absolutely. So. Um, And, you know, I mean, you know, they've worked together before. Sure. uh, Nafrio and uh, Pratt, they worked together. Hawk and um, Washington worked together. (coughs) And, of course, uh, Foucault, they worked, like, so there's enough uh, just chemistry from a production standpoint that they were good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, speaking of James Horner, who did the the score, mm-hmm. uh, well, semi did the score technically, I guess. Um, he passed away back in 2015, so uh, this is his third posthumous score. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, um, I don't know, I, I you know, I, I before we started, we I joked about not uh, it didn't quite have the magnificent seven orchestral theme that that we've grown to know and love but but i guess dimitri has a much more keener eye not eye uh ear than i do because you heard remnants of it oh throughout the entire movie i mean i was waiting for the movie to open up with the score and that didn't happen but then until the very very end we got that full orchestral and i was wondering like was like are they going to completely forego but then as the movie went on, whether they were on their journey, you heard it through other rhythmic instruments. It, to me, it sounded like a, a like a timpani type, a very deep bass type drum where they had the cadence of boom, 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 boom. That was a prevalent thematic score throughout the entire movie that built up until we got that that score at the end. Now... I had only wished that the movie had lived up to and built up to that, that end score because that, to me, was one of my favorite parts of the movie because not only do you have this iconic piece of wonderful music, right? Great score, but you had the way that they Came did up. the seven. Yeah. And and I was like, that if 
only like the if the movie could have lived up to that to me, it would have been a really really big win because I love the imagery at the end because they actually paid homage to one of the mag- these nineteen sixty Magnificent Seven where. They had the seven, and their faces were in the seven, much like in the end of the movie, which I thought was really cool. And then you, you hear that, you hear that score. But it was um, really interesting because they were they were doing Southpaw, and Fuqua was talking to Horner about Magnificent Seven, and he wanted him to at least read the script and whatnot. And you know, he had passed away later that summer, and. Um, he's, you know, the way Fuqua tells the story, um, he says, while we were shooting, I got a call, uh, that James left a gift for you. And he goes, I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe he had bought something for me related to Southpaw of all things. And then Simon Franklin, uh, Horner's longtime programmer and arranger came to the set with that gift. And it was a suite of themes for the Magnificent Seven. And... James wrote these themes for Magnificent Seven, and he wrote them off the script. And, you know, he goes, the movie may not have ever even happened at that point. Because that's how, it was just conversation. And they had a script, and he just said, here, I've already got six or seven themes. That's like the world's best gift. Oh, to be, to to compose? Yeah, to be able to do that. You know what I mean? Just that notion alone, uh, to... You know, it, it's tragic that you, someone like that uh, passes away, but that, you know, in their own little way that they've left you this gift, mm-hmm. you know, and again, to, to your point, like, okay, it could have been, it could have been a watch for all I know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, that's a decent gift, fine, whatever, but this just goes so many things beyond that. Yeah, he was thinking ahead and he goes, you know, I was reading the script and he put this down for him. And, like, again, the movie could have never happened. Like, they could have pulled the plug. They said, a Western, (laughs) whatever, you know? So, and then this gentleman, Franklin, um, he completed the score and doing his best to base it off the work that Horner had started. So, you know, Horner has left, you know, an amazing legacy of, of movies. And he's worked with greats whether it's you know he's worked in star trek franchise he's worked with james cameron whether it be for aliens or even avatar and such and fuqua obviously you know he's left he has a legacy of music um you know behind him and he was a very talented and gifted composer and you know it's it is to me it is a gift it's a talent to do you know that's why i love listening to score and when we've had john ottman and we had um Christopher Lenertzen, like, I love hearing how they approach movies and the cadence. And because I really do think that, you know, there are some times where a score can overpower a movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's got to be a perfect balance somewhere in there. And um, it would have been very interesting to talk to James Horner or even uh, the, the Fra- Franklin and say, okay, why didn't you open up with the Magnificent th- like Seven theme? Like, why wasn't that, like, what we, I, like, I want to know what the thought process is. It was throughout the movie, if you could pick it up, and it only showed up at the end. You know, it, it seems like that was a, a conscious decision to do. Um, because but, you I, know. I, I, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> if I had to guess, um, and if you guys disagree, let me know and let me know why, <laughs> hopefully. Um, 
But it's so iconic yeah. that then you would have then the movie. I don't know. I don't know if it ever would have lived up, lived up to it. Maybe. We're kind of saying that, you know. But yeah, you're right. How do you how do you come back from that and let it sort of have its own merit? Yeah, I think also at the end there were better end title sequence credits that that like also help match and enhance the music itself. That's already well established sure. and people know the music. But it was more even visually better enforced sure. with the better title credits at the end. Agreed. Which made it more memorable, and I think it like you know ended the movie on a better note. Yeah. Or on a high note, really. It ended it impactful. It ended it with that great score. So at least with that, knowing that and seeing that, I did walk out going, all right, that that was cool. You know, it was. Uh, I'm glad that it was there. Like yeah. you can't you can't forgo it. But I just wanted to see how they were going to bring it to incorporate. Um, well, let's talk about the, uh, you know, I, I, Marissa, uh, well, I forget. Did you say you didn't have a lot of knowledge going into it or you weren't listening, looking for it? Because I, I well, I, I for, the, for this movie, because I, I think it's ironic because I had like, like for months on end, all I kept seeing was Magnificent Seven everywhere. And maybe it's because I'm a guy and they knew how to market to me. <laughs> Um, I mean, between uh, the NBA Finals, uh, the Summer Olympics, Olympics, football, baseball, you know, and all, like, the American Horror Story, Voice, Empire, Walking Dead, like, all these shows that, uh, yes, women do watch, but uh, I don't know. And I, I just saw I mean, it. I knew because I'm a big fan of NBA, and I'm a big fan of the Olympics, so I definitely saw commercials upon commercials of this movie and like i knew that this particular year 2016 there was like a bunch of fun westerns coming out mm-hmm. and like magnificent seven hateful eight and then you even had the terrible ridiculous six you know like mm-hmm. uh, all these plan just western movies so i like i knew about this movie um for a while and it has a big star studded cast yeah you have chris pratt and denzel washington plus everyone else and vincent d'onofrio like ethan those, yeah, yeah like you have big Peter. names people who have yeah. big followings you're just gonna know what their upcoming projects are gonna be and yeah. i think like i knew this whole summer that this film was coming out yeah. it's one of the last ones to come out to end the summer mm-hmm. yeah it was a movie that i mean you know from a marketing standpoint yes i knew it was coming out <laughs> um you know and i was looking forward to it you know i do there are people who work together with various directors, you know, um, and, and they'll admit it, you know, and Denzel works great with Fuqua. I mean, he really does. Yeah, like, no, regarding so. whether it's a serial, whether it's a training day movie or whether it's Equalizer, whether it's Magnificent Seven, mm-hmm. you know, they, 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 they get one another. And you can tell, too, like, it was fun seeing Denzel and Ethan Hawke yeah. together again. You know, I just think it would have been a, it would have been a fascinating set. To be a part of, to see these guys working together, mm-hmm. um, but I, and I think that when there is that comfort level with your director, you know that helps as well. Like and again, regardless of you know what I believe in Denzel's performance or not, like I said, I, it was not a horrible performance whatsoever. You know, and he is simpatico with with Anton Fuqua, and you know, hopefully they'll make some more movies together. Oh, I think they you will. know, I think they're I think they work good. I, I think, think they, they work will. good together. Yeah. and they make money. They like do. their movies, their movies do well. Well, so speaking, you know, part of it, like Lone <clears throat> Ranger and um, uh, Cowboys and Aliens, those just cost a crap ton of money, and sure. so 
I don't know why. Obviously, they're supposed to be well, cowboys and aliens. Visual not sex. Uh, not necessarily that quite of a western, but the you know this one's made. You know, it's made for over a hundred million dollars, but compared to those movies, those movies were over two hundred million. Yeah. So you know this this will make its money back, and, and and it's already proven in terms of Denzel. It's his third highest opening. It's Fuquo's uh, second highest opening. So, um, you know they're already they are well on their way. Yeah, I mean you know it opens up around thirty five million, and and I was doing a little bit of research, and when you look at movies of recent like westerns, like even a True Grit, uh, Django Unchained, and such, like those movies opened up around the same same range. Uh, and they each topped over a hundred million dollars, so you know I think Magnificent Seven. You know, if you're following history um, and you're following a track that it's on, it could potentially reach a hundred million dollars, depending on what the competition is upcoming. And they're, you know, I mean, it's got an A minus uh, via Cinema Score, so audiences appear to enjoy it. Denzel. We've said it before, and it's I'm not, not nothing new. He is a star, like people like him, like and he crosses over, you know. He people like to see him on screen, mm-hmm. whether he's in Training Day playing like a bad guy, or whether he's in The Equalizer or Magnificent he's Seven or The Gangster. He's people <laughs> like him. The in in. You know, when you're partnering and you're able to say things like, from the people that brought you the equalizer, you know, I, I think people enjoy that. The other thing that they did well in marketing this movie is that they made it action oriented. And yeah. people like to see Denzel in those kinds of movies. When he's in a more serious movie, obviously the marketing is much different, but they still, there's a charisma about him that even if it's a drama, they're gonna watch him. They, they, you know, audiences like he is a bona fide star that is, that, that that can mm-hmm. open up a movie. Absolutely, you know. I agree. He just has, you know, I don't know actually know how tall he is, but he just has that great physical presence, gravitas, you know, gravitas. <laughs> and Will Smith is like a star that. too, but you know, still, I, I think like you know, there's a humor side to Will, whereas Denzel just. You, I don't know. I buy the seriousness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the cool factor. Yeah. And he's an excellent motivational speaker. Is he? If you've ever le- I haven't. heard any of his speeches, he's amazing. There there are some moments I had, admittedly, I would listen to his speeches just to get me going. <laughs> that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. No, he's great. That's great. Speaker. Absolutely. Well, uh, before we wrap up, um, I, Dimitri promised that he'd tie in Westerns and, and more specifically Magnificent well, Seven and what it's, what it's managed to do in terms of its legacy. Yeah, and I also wanted to, yeah, I wanted to talk about its legacy, but I also wanted to talk to a little bit about, a little bit about Magnificent Seven, like it's, it's history. It's tracked to what, what we have today. So I find it, because I find this fascinating. So Akira Kurosawa at the time was a very huge fan of American cinema, specifically the American Western. And he's like, how can I make, I want to make an American Western um, or a movie that's based here, but I want to make, I want to use the terms of an American Western. So he goes out and he makes this movie, The Seven Samurai, which is a classic movie. But that was his ode to the American Western. So Yul Brenner and Walter Murch, um, who was a poncho at MGM and, and, and John Sturgis, 
Yul Brenner takes it to Sturges and Merch and says, hey, this Akira Kurosawa guy, he made this wonderful movie, and it's supposed to be an ode to American Westerns. I think this is a great movie. How can we make this actually into an American Western? So they go ahead and they do it, and they get people like Steve McQueen and such, and so they make the movie. Now, his version of Seven Samurais, um, it goes on that Kurosawa was so impressed by the 1960 version of Magnificent Seven that he sent Sturges a ceremonial sword, like <laughs> as a gift. And mind you, at the time that the movie came out, it wasn't like a critical darling or anything, but Kurosawa loved it so much. He was like, here, I'm giving you this sword. And Try like, getting we, that through customs today. <laughs> <laughs> Mail no, it, I swear right? to God, it's, it's, it's honorable. <laughs> so, you know, so I find that... I love that, that that there was like a little bit of a love fest and that American movie making influenced, you know, the East. So or the West, I should say. So, you know, when we talked about earlier about how the Magnificent Seven continued to, you know, the tropes continue on. But the other great thing that it did, you know, you had the Dirty Dozen, you had where Eagles Dare. I forgot about Inglorious Bastards. It's the same thing about putting these unlikely people together, right? You know, but then again, the Western became satirized and parodied. Then you had movies like Blazing Saddles, which is, in a sense, you know, a town being taken over by the dastardly villain. And Blazing Saddles is a great satire of the Western and Magnificent Seven. Then you had, of course, the parody of the Three Amigos, which, again, (laughs) plot for plot, it's... It's the Magnificent Seven, except we get the Magnificent Three, a great comedy. But how Westerns have, throughout American cinema, it's just, basically, it's, it, it's influenced great things like science fiction. Um, Gene Roddenberry, creator of Star Trek, his log line in pitching Star Trek was, it's a wagon train for the stars. Wagon train being a very popular Western on TV, he wanted a take that setting, you wanted to set it up in space. That was his logline to pitch it. And then, of course, there's a little movie that you may have heard of, came out in 1977, called Star Wars. Is a is basically a western in space. You look at somebody like Han Solo. If one thing you noticed in here is the way Han Solo wore his blaster, he even has the tie yeah. around his leg. And like, think about what Star Wars is about. It's a band of unlikely people getting together to thwart the bad guys. And look, you have Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Ben Kenobi, Han Solo, Chewbacca, R2-D2, C-3PO. You have your Magnificent Seven right there who's going in there. So the Western definitely permeates into American pop culture and influences other genres you know, by far. And that's what I mean. If you can take the story out and plug it into something else, it's a really good story. It should work in almost any type of genre. We were talking about uh, Easter eggs. We never talked like, you know, the, the, the joke so far so good is actually a reference to the 1960 version where, where uh, Steve McQueen's character says that joke when they were in a dire situation. But also, when I, and, you know, you also had down the horse that Chris Pratt rode and this one was the star of War Horse. That's a big horse, by the way. Yeah, that's a big horse. Um, But the other one that I noticed, too, is that um, Bartholomew, the villain, offers the town folk $20 to get off the land. Now, $20 is what our original band, or the the 1960 version, 
$20 was the fee that they were going to get for helping out the townsfolk, mm-hmm. uh, you know, beat, beat, beat the bad guys. So, you know, I noticed that one as mm-hmm. well. That, that, that was sort of interesting. An interesting too, nod, So, yeah. An interesting nod, so. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Fun little things like that. Well, there you go. Obviously, a very rich history. Um, if you love Westerns, there's definitely no shortage of Westerns for you to check out. And I wish we could cover them all here on Anatomy. And hopefully, as more and more kind of resurface into mainstream, we'll get to do so. Um, but in the meantime, that's that's about all we got. It's Any tough. Th- yeah, well, I was going to mention you and I did a Western a couple of years ago that know. we thought was much better than a lot of other people did. But it's a Western nonetheless. And it's called A Million Ways to Die in the West. It was a comedy that was a Western that, I mean, he actually used cinematographers yeah. who shot Westerns before. It definitely had the look, you know. Yeah, I thought, I Blazing thought, Saddles yeah. is a Western. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a Western. It makes fun of the Western, but it's a Western, you know. Uh, you know, in... Yes, please. Good, and good point. Yeah. Absolutely good point. Marissa, any final thoughts from you? Uh, overall, as not a Western savant, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, I would recommend this to to people who like Westerns, who like action, and who just like comeback stories, because I feel like this movie encompasses all three of those. And overall, it was just a fun, entertaining movie just to watch throughout the whole thing. I think Inception has seven people, right? Could be wrong. Say that again? Yeah, it could. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, I have to to, break it all down. Um, Well, there you have it. That's my theory. Prove me wrong. (laughs) Watch there be six people or eight. I don't know. Um, Anyway, thank you guys for joining us yet again. Um, We truly appreciate the support. Let us know your guys' thoughts, comments, opinions, all that stuff. Um, After all, that's what this is all about, is creating a discussion, not just us talking at you. Um, At DMovies1701. Yep. Yeah. That's uh, it's been some time since we got to say that. It's been, yeah, yeah, it, it's it's nice to hear. And I want to say again, thanks for the support. And folks, go see. There's some great westerns out there. Go on to TurnerClassicMovies.com or stream some. Mm-hmm. Go on to Netflix. They're really great stories. Check Don't out watch one of Ridiculous my, Six. Or, or, not or, worth it. Not that one. <laughs> or watch something really good, like my favorite, which is the man who shot Liberty Valance. Which great performance from Jimmy Stewart and and. Um, John Wayne, of course. So check that out in The Searchers, actually. And for you Star Trek fans, The Searchers has Captain Christopher Pike, Jeffrey Hunter is in it. So there's something for you if you're not into big Western. Check it out. I think you will like these movies. Well, I have my homework cut out for me. <laughs> at Serafini TV. That's at right. the Popcorn Talk. Um, and of course, shout out to that Zach Wilson in the booth today. Um, he did not see this movie, but you can definitely check him out every week talking about science fiction on uh, Sci-Fi Weekly here on Popcorn Talk. Uh, in the meantime, go see other great movies. Check out our past library of content. There's plenty of them, and we'll continue uh, as more and more movies come out. In fact, we're doing uh, Miss per- Peregrine's House. Miss Peregrine's for- Home for Peculiar Children. And what's the other one? And Storks. Storks? And- yeah. Right, and we'll other fun storks. shows. <laughs> Um, and some other movies so (laughs) definitely stay tuned Uh, see you next time see you from producers Maria Menounos Kevin Undergaro Phil Svitek and the rest of the Anatomy of a Movie staff we would like to thank you for listening and subscribing to the show if you have any questions or comments feel free to email or tweet us I'm Sir Richard Wentworth and this has been Anatomy of a Movie
The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of its owners or principals.